I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 19. And I want to read in your hearing verse 31 to verse 37. John 19, beginning at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and that preparation is the preparation of the lambs for the Passover, the slaying of the lambs. And so well, that's the day that that preparation of the, of the, of the lambs went on, uh, that Jesus died. It was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, in the parentheses, for that Sabbath was a high day. So the Lord died on the Friday, and then Saturday was the Sabbath day, and this was the Sabbath of the Passover. And then hence it was a special day. Uh, the day of the, Paso- of the Sabbath on the Passover was considered a high day, a day of special um, holiness, So the Jews then, that is the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate that there, that is the crucified men on the cross, their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Remember, Jesus was crucified between two other men. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, and again... Another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The portion that's been read in your hearing comes right after. John records the death of Jesus. Jesus has died. And he cried out in a loud voice victoriously, It is finished. It is achieved. It's been accomplished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But John continues his narrative by relating the events that were subsequent to that, events that concerned the disposition of our Lord's body. Now in the various uh, creedal statements and gospel summaries that we come across, both in scripture and in the history of the church, The pattern is usually you move from the death of Jesus to the burial of Jesus. And that, of course, is followed ultimately by his resurrection and ascension. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, that has that format. It says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. That he was buried. Death is followed by burial. In the language of the Apostles' Creed, similarly, that says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He's crucified, he died, and he was buried. So we would think that maybe John would have followed that same format. Jesus died, and his death would be followed by his burial. Luke does it. Mark does it. Matthew puts in events that occurred following his death having to do with such things as the dead rising out of their, their tombs and the, the um, veil of the temple being torn when he died you have events like that, strange occurrences that uh, again related to the reality of the death of Jesus, conquering death uh, the death of Jesus paving the way of entrance into the very presence of God but mostly, again in the scriptures we have death and burial brought very close together. But now we have not different events that took place in Jerusalem, we have the events that pertain to the body of Jesus, in which John's Gospel tells us things that are found in no other Gospels. These are things unique to John's relating of the matter, his unique 
contribution to our understanding of Jesus' death upon the cross. Because all this takes place while Jesus is on the cross. He remains on the cross and uh, prior to his being taken down and placed in the tomb, we have these things occurring. And it's to this occurrence of these events, central to which is the piercing of the side of our Lord with a soldier's spear. I want to look at this portion of scripture by looking basically at three things. The first is going to be the longest of the things we're going to look at. And the first thing is the characters that are set forth in this passage. Then secondly, we're going to look at the one who corroborates the events that are are enacted here, the things we're told occurred. So we have the characters followed by the corroborator, the one who gives witness to these events, and then we're going to see ultimately the cause of these events. Why did all this take place, this matter of the piercing of Jesus' side? Why does this all take place? that they investigate and see whether he is dead and whether his bones of his legs should be broken. Well, we have the fulfillment of scripture as being defined as the reason. So that's where we're going this morning. The characters, the corroborator, and the cause. How long did it take you to come up with that? Those three C's, Pastor. Well, witness was the hard one. John says, this is my testimony. He's bearing witness to this. Divine corroboration was something It took me a while to figure that one out. But it is corroboration, what he gives us. He gives us something that supports what he's told us by his own eyewitness testimony. So, let's begin. Let's begin with the characters. The first character that comes to our view in this passage are the Jews. That is, the Jewish leaders. This is not just Jewish people in general. This is not because these leaders of the Jews took a place of aggressive opposition to Jesus and their hand was clearly evident in in Jesus' crucifixion. This is no ground for anti-Semitism. That's nonsense. And people that take the fact that John speaks of the Jews in a negative way as a ground of speaking of all Jews in negative ways is just simply a resting of the scriptures. It's a terrible use of scripture. and has no justification at all. These are Jewish leaders who had their own ambitions and their own power to, uh, to uh, preserve and secure, who took up opposition to Jesus and they and they alone are the ones that John is speaking evil against. Remember, there's 3,000 Jews that get saved on the day of Pentecost. Remember that uh, the disciples of Jesus were all Jewish. And Jesus himself was a Jew, king of the Jews. And there's nothing about Judaism in and of itself. I mean, rabbinical Judaism is a different story. But in terms of Jewish people that comprise this nation, there's absolutely nothing that's across the board spoken of, of ill or evil against them. But these are the Jewish leaders. And these Jewish leaders did play a principal part in the arrest, in the trial, and in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And once more, they come on the scene. And the interesting thing that I think characterizes these people is that up to this point, there's nothing about what's been going on in Jerusalem and Golgotha. There's respect to Jesus' crucifixion that bothered them in the least. They had no qualms about the cruelty and barbarity of Roman crucifixion. They had no sense of injustice of carrying out a crucifixion against an innocent man, a man who went about Jerusalem doing good, healing people, teaching God's word, No sense of their own guilt and wrong in their involvement in the events of the death of this innocent man. They now grow a conscience about matters of moral purity. They're concerned about the day, the time, the season, the rituals that the nation is about to engage in. It's Passover. It's the day of preparation for the Passover. It's the day when the Passover lambs are slaughtered. They had no thought that maybe the Lamb of God that bears away the sin of the world is going to be slaughtered in the very day they're slaughtering the Passover. That that enactment of God that was in type and shadow of greater things to come has now been fulfilled. As an innocent man, a man without spot or blemish or any such thing, the holy, harmless Son of God is put to death by the hands of men. 
But it's their preparation for their day, their Passover. And it was the day prior to the Sabbath of the Passover week. A high Sabbath. An especially holy day of the Passover week. And the leaders of the Jews are now concerned. Dead bodies on a tree. Bodies of those crucified men have to be taken down from the cross. They're probably concerned about the stipulation of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Maybe you can just turn there for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is a passage that Paul makes use of in terms of understanding the nature of Jesus' death in Galatians chapter 3. Here we're told in verse 22 of chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death. Now, again, the death is not by hanging on a tree. He's put to death in a Jewish context by stoning. The Jews would stone people to death. But yet once he's stoned and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, you put him out in public view, perhaps as a warning against others not to commit the crime that he had committed, that you put him up on public display on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the very same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So they grew a conscience about a hanged man hanging on a tree, hanging on a cross, and bringing defilement to the nation during the holy season of the Passover, during the day of the high Passover, the holy day of the holy season. They're concerned about ritual. And I think there's a contrast between how John views this scene and how the Jewish leaders view this scene. John's concerned is these events are occurring that scripture may be fulfilled. And their concern is not scripture. Their concern is really a misuse of scripture. It's just not the same. Um, because I think also there's another aspect of this. Is the Deuteronomy passage had some involvement in their thought thinking. But I think also later traditions, later rabbinical texts and interpretations also had some very superstitious notions about what a dead person on a, on a tree uh, overnight might bring uh, in terms of curses, in terms of how they, outline, out, how they expanded upon the biblical teaching. And, and I don't think the principal concern of these men really would have been ultimately God and his law. But the principle, because if they were concerned about God and his law, they'd be concerned about justice. They'd be concerned about compassion. They'd be concerned about a host of other things that just didn't inform their view of life, their view of, of leadership, their view of what their responsibilities were before God as leaders of the nation. They're concerned with their own traditions, their own religious sensibilities, formed by their traditions. And that leads them to go to Pilate and ask that the legs of these dead men upon the cross, I'm sorry, these men dying upon the cross, that their legs might be broken and their bodies might be removed. I think that's important. I, I met with a guy earlier this week who attends a, a Messianic congregation. And I don't have anything against Mess. I mean, they're not enemies. They're, they're, they're friends. But, you know, when I, I'm from a Jewish background myself. Grew up in New York is a, in a Jewish family. And uh, I didn't hear much of the gospel and didn't have much in the way of the Jewish education. I was uh, an American Jew. Um, and when God saved me, uh, he saved me really not so much out of Judaism, but just out of an American mindset. He uh, saved me out of, a, well, sort of a hippie, late, late 60s uh, mindset out of a drug culture, out of a culture of uh, uh, certain views of, of politics and certain views of life. And he brought me to the knowledge of his grace in Christ. And I'm beginning as a Christian to learn a new creation, to learn a new way of life, a new way of understanding. 
And I met Messianic Christians, and they're lovely people. They, they have zeal for God's glory, for the furtherance of God's kingdom. And yet they have also a paramount concern that Jewish people, particularly in America, would not lose their Jewish identity. And I got bombarded with a lot of that. And folks, I, I didn't understand what they were even talking about. Because number one, I'm an American. And I didn't have a Jewish identity. And to begin to foist an identity that I had just because my parents were nominal Jews, that I would be as a Christian something other than a, a new covenant Christian, but that I would make more of the Jewish ceremonies and the Jewish rituals and Jewish things. See, much of that today is formed not so much by Old Testament teaching. I mean, part of it is formed by Old Testament teaching. But much about modern-day Judaism is formed by rabbinical tradition. What is modern Judaism is not Old Testament religion. There's Mishnahs, there's Targums, there's whole bunch of rabbinical writings that, that stand in interpretation of what the scriptures teach. And they stand, a lot of them, in opposition to what the scriptures teach. I remember having my teeth worked on by a Jewish dentist, the guy with the skull cap, and we got talking about religion. I told him I was a pastor, and we began to talk about the Bible. And I asked him the simple question, that why, why would the rabbis think it's proper to avoid mixing meat with milk when Abraham served such a meal to the angels in, in Genesis 19. And I found out he had a, he had a rabbi's answer. He had, so I guess somewhere a rabbi commented on that. And in order to preserve a tradition that really on the face of things stands against what the scriptures say that Abraham did. And he said, well, obviously, what Abraham did then is he served the meal, beginning with the meat, and then he waited a few hours, digestion took place, and then he brought out the milk that followed. Well, okay. But what you, why would you even go there? You're looking, to, you're looking to remain consistent, not with scripture, but you're looking to remain consistent with the tradition with an idea that came much, much later. And that's what so much of modern Judaism is involved in. And these were men who were not so much concerned with what Scripture taught them and what they were supposed to be in the, light, in the sight of God, in the light of His Word. They were seeking their own glory. They were seeking the glory that comes from men, Jesus tells us in chapter 5. They were seeking their own things, not the things of the living God. And so much of their concern for their own ritual was a concern that was rooted more in superstition than it was concerned in the teaching of God's word. Anyway, whatever it was that motivated them, now their minds, bodies can't stay on the cross. They must be taken down. And so they go to Pilate, and they ask Pilate that the legs of these men might be broken. Now that would be a mercy. Certainly, if you're being crucified upon the cross, it would be hours and days before you would die. And then oftentimes what would happen, and the Romans delighted in this, the Romans delighted in this kind of torture, in which people that hung on the cross day by day would find that, especially in the nights, the wild beasts would come and they would begin to chew upon their feet. And they couldn't get much higher than that. And the birds would come and begin to pick at them. Horrific. Horrific. Inhumane. And yet Pilate would have just allowed them to remain in that position. But the Jews wants their legs to be broken. Because once their legs are broken, then there's nothing to support their bodies. And their chest will heave, and there will be no ability to breathe. And ultimately, within an hour, within an hour uh, they, would, they would suffocate. They would, they would cease breathing, and they would die. And so in one sense, it's a mercy, but it's a slight mercy. But the Jews go to the Roman governor... And they make this request that the legs of these crucified men might be broken and that they might be taken away. So, what comes upon the scene next? Well, the soldiers. The soldiers come upon the scene. They're introduced in verse 32. When the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first. And then they broke the legs of crucified man number three. But the one that was in the middle, when they had come to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and did not break his legs. 
with Jesus alone, his body, though twisted, though marred, though every bone out of joint, yet no bone was broken. The bones of his body remained whole. Once they see that, maybe they're thinking, maybe he's just unconscious. Maybe he just fainted. Maybe he just is sleeping. Let's make sure this is death and death indeed. And so we come to one of these soldiers, an unidentified man, and he takes a spear. And he takes the spear and pierces the side of Jesus with his spear. Didn't just poke at him. He took the spear and he heaved it through or he thrust it through. But with an act of violence against the body of Jesus, he takes his spear and he pierces his side with his spear. He's going to ensure this man indeed is dead. So what what we find is that through this, Jesus' death is confirmed. A death had truly taken place. I remember back in the 60s, there was something of a furor that came about by the publication of a book called um, The Passover Plot, was his name. Anybody remember that besides me? Some of you remember The Passover Plot. And The Passover Plot was a book that contended that Jesus hadn't really died he just swooned, he just went unconscious and later on they took him down from the cross and they resuscitated him and John's telling us that that simply didn't happen, that simply couldn't happen, because it wasn't just nails were driven through his hands and through his feet, but a sword was thrust through his side, there was another wound, and it was a major wound if you had a spear thrust into your side in such a way that it produced both blood and water it may well have been that the heart was pierced. It may well have been that vital organs were pierced in order to produce this. Now, I don't know the medical reasons that when the, when the, when the um, spear went through Jesus' side, we're told, that uh, this occurred. That there was not just blood, but there was blood and water and there was a separation of the two. That you see actual water coming out and see blood coming out. There are medical theories as to the nature of what caused this, of the spear piercing, not just the side, but the pericardial sac, it's called. And it would result in something like this, that there would be water that would be contained in the, in the sac, and that would be emitted along with the blood. Others suggest that there was water that gathered in his lungs and ribs as a result of dehydration and crucifixion, um, and that there was a lower membrane that was pierced by the spear, and that would happen. Lots of ideas are out there, folks. They abound. I'm not a medical man. I'm not a doctor. I don't know the legitimacy of any of these speculations. I'm a preacher. I'm not an expert on medical explanations of what happens when physical trauma takes place. Lots of books are out there. You can read them. But I do believe John's presentation of this event in his mind had not just medical reasons. Not just to say, well, a death took place and we ought to see the fact that he died. It was a true death. It does that. It does that. Without question. Nothing like what Jesus' body experience would have um, kept him from dying. Not just the result of the, of the infection, although that would have taken days to do, but there would have been no blood water mix if his body was not already expired. And recently expired. Not enough time for the blood to coagulate or anything like that to have taken place. But yet a death had in fact taken place. But I think John wants us to see more in this. There's theological reasons behind the description that he gives. I know when you begin to think in terms of of John's own presentation of Jesus in this gospel, there's loads to consider. There's loads to consider. I mean, you might want to think of, of the water that is first mentioned. Well, this water in the Jordan where Jesus was baptized. Let's pass over that for a moment. And see, the water that Jesus turned to wine at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. What kind of a fluid is Jesus taking this water and transforming it into? Well, something that's blood red, folks. It's just blood red wine. 
Again, I'm not certain. I was thinking maybe there's some correlation to the fact that the waters of the Nile, there were clear water, would turn blood red when the Exodus took place. Perhaps there's some implications that arise out of that. But water, spirit, and blood are three realities that run consistently through John's account of the life, death, and achievement of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the water and the spirit that are mentioned in chapter 3 with respect to the new birth, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot see nor enter the kingdom of God. We have the water and spirit that's mentioned with reference to the woman at the well, when Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and he whom you were speaking to, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. That's also in a connection where Jesus explains to this woman to whom he offers living water of God's commitment to have a people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. You have the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day of the feast, Jesus rising and declaring that if any man thirst, let him come to me, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said, speaking of the Spirit. And then we have the statement in John 5 and verse 6. And this is why I want to just mention water, spirit, and blood as realities that are there in John's gospel that seem to be related to one another because John himself brings them together in a passage found in the first letter. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6. And you see how this accords with John's own statement that he's the testifier of these things. He's standing forth to testify that these things are true. First John chapter 5 and verse 6. And again, this is a, a letter that's written that the reader would be confirmed in the knowledge that through Jesus eternal life is given, that they would know the Lord, they would know they have eternal life through Him. It says of uh, verse 6, This is He. Who is He? Well, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He, Jesus the Son of God, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He came by water and by blood. Now the water sometimes is viewed as the waters of birth. I don't think so, but maybe. But it certainly is the reality that he came and shares with our blood. He's a partaker of flesh and blood. As the writer of the Hebrew says, he comes into the world. Perhaps when you think of water and blood, it may well be that the water that's being described is his baptismal water, and the blood is the blood of his crucifixion. So it may be that John's describing he that came, beginning his ministry, through his baptism at the Jordan, to culminating his ministry, and his crucifixion upon the cross. This is Jesus. This is Jesus in the fullness of his life and ministry, beginning with his baptism, ending in his crucifixion. He came by water, he came by blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. John's telling us these are three factors that are central to our faith as God's people. The necessity of the Spirit who comes to bear witness to the reality of the water and the blood the Jesus who came by baptismal water, the Jesus who dies in crucifixion blood, and who points to the reality of the Spirit's coming all through the narrative, and that these are the three things that do agree. There's lots to unpack here, and I'm not sure I can unpack it in all of its fullness. But it does seem to me that what John's telling us is the fact that in the death of Jesus, water and blood emit from his body, Certainly we can see that Jesus himself said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Maybe something of a literal appearance of that. Out of his own body, living water is proceeds. Water that emits, and the one who said, I will give you living water, is the one who has from his own body water that emits, picturing the reality of that living water that he promised. But certainly the blood is the blood of the Passover lamb. It's the blood of the atonement. It's the blood that causes our sins to be pardoned. It causes the angel of death to pass over us. So it's the picture of Jesus and his death upon the cross dying for us 
accomplishing eternal redemption, accomplishing atonement, accomplishing and achieving the liberation of God's people through His dying for them. Again, the night of the Passover, the Jews took the lamb, they took the blood, they put it on the door, the doors and the and the um, the uh, door jams of of of, of the uh, of the houses, so that the angel of death would pass over them. Why? That they might be freed, that they might be liberated, that they might be brought out of slavery, that they might be brought unto God. And those are the ones, of course, who also pass through a sea. It's all the picture of atonement. It's the picture of purification. It's the picture of the reality of the presence of God in their midst. Accomplishing these things for God's people. It's the picture of the water that refreshes and that vivifies and that uplifts and, 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 uh, and takes away all of, this, of, this, of the scorching deadness and dryness of life in a fallen world. So it's all the picture of God's redemption. It's the picture, right in full, of God's work of new exodus, of a new redemption, of a new liberation of His people through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John wants to call attention to it. It's something that he is telling us he himself is corroborating corroborating, and he himself is corroborating it because this is something to be understood. This is something that needs to be seen right at this point when there came from the side of our Lord blood and water. We have something of a anticipation of John, 1 John 5 6. He who saw it is born witness of bearing testimony to the reality of what took place when the Son of God died. Out from His side flowed these rivers of living water. Out from His side flowed this atoning blood. This blood that reconciles. This blood that cleanses. This blood that atones. This water that gives life. This water that gives cleansing. This water that gives reviving life to the dead. His testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth that you may believe. And John's going to tell us later that as he closes the book that he's bearing witness to these things when in the words of chapter 21 and verse 24 he says this is the disciple, this one whom Jesus is speaking to when he says if it's my will that he remain till I come what is that to you? Those words were addressed to the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was addressed to the writer of this gospel. It was addressed to John. And John says at the conclusion of the book, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He's writing these things that you might believe. And right at the point of the Exuding from the body of the Son of God, this blood and water comes forth. That John feels there's a need for a confirmatory testimony. There's a need for a corroboration of these things. Let the medical professionals try to figure out why it was that blood and water came forth from his body. I'll tell you, theologically, we know. That's the blood of atonement. That's the blood of salvation. That's the blood that brings cleansing. That's the blood that brings forgiveness, that brings reconciliation with God. That's the water of life. That's the water that brings us out from slavery and death and hard oppression. That brings us out of the fiery furnace into the garden again. Into the presence. I'm sorry I went back to the garden. I had to do that for you, Ed. Brings us back into the presence of God, into the fellowship of God, under the love of God, into the enjoyment of communion with God. God bringing out his nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Why? That they might worship me in the wilderness. It's not just that they would be brought out of slavery. They would be brought to be worshippers of God. They would be brought to him. And it's his blood and the water as well as the Spirit. And John's going to go on to tell us about the Spirit being given by the resurrected Christ is vital to that redemption, vital 
to that union and communion that we have with the living God. And so we have the spear that thrusts through him, emitting the blood and the water, having been corroborated by John's true testimony. But if you're still up in the air about the matter, you still say, okay, well, you know, John's the writer. He has his own interests. He wants his story to be believed. But how can we really know? How can it really be confirmed? Well, again, we go back to the fact that John is the gospel of witness. John is the gospel who speaks of signs again and again and again and again. There was a man come from God whose name was John who came to do what? To bear witness. John the Baptist was a witness. Jesus says, believe for the sake of the works. The works that he performed were witnesses. They bore witness to the truth of who Jesus is. The multiplication of the loaves and the fish. The turning of the water to wine. The healing of the nobleman's uh, son. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. All bore witness to Jesus. So you have John the Baptist bearing witness. You have the, the, the signs bearing witness. Then you have the Father bearing witness. The voice from heaven that says... This is my son, my beloved. God himself bears witness. Then you have the spirit bears witness. He will send the spirit and will testify to take the things of mine and reveal them to you. The spirit bears witness. And then you have the son himself bearing witness, speaking forth his own witness. And then you have the scriptures bearing witness. And I think there's one more. And I think I forgot. There's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They bear witness. There's John the Baptist there bears witness. There's the signs that bears witness. There's um, the scriptures that bear witness. And uh, I got it written down somewhere. There's one more. I'm forgetting it. John? I'm sorry? John? John the Baptist. I think I mentioned him. Okay, well, yeah. Oh, here, There you go. John the Gospel writer. Okay. That would be the seventh, wouldn't it? This is the seventh somewhere else I haven't thought of. But I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. I think it's John himself who comes to bear witness. But you know, if, again, if, if you don't believe any of those other things, it's an amazing reality that Scripture speaks to the issue of all these events in the life of the Son of God in an incredible and amazing detail. And if you put it all together, the chances it would refer to anybody, one person in the world would be, you know, millions and millions to one, billions to one. And they all are true of Jesus. All of these words of the Old Testament all fall upon Jesus with almost an exact fulfillment. And so John tells us, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, there may be some reference in Psalm 34 to the fact that one who is afflicted, who is often viewed as a messianic figure in the Psalms, and is said that, there's not, that his bones are not broken. But I think in that context it might refer to believers in general, but it might have some special reference to Jesus. But likely, more than likely, there's a reference to this as the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 and in Numbers chapter 8 both speak to the matter of the bone of the bones of the of, of, of the Passover lamb remaining intact and not being broken. It was one of the qualifications of someone of, of, of a lamb to be utilized for the purposes of the Passover feast. Look at Exodus chapter 12, and I'll just read read it to you. Exodus 12 and the, the verses verse 46. When the qualifications or the regulations of the Passover are given, it says in verse 46, It, that is the Passover lamb, shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And so you couldn't take a broken boned lamb and slaughter it for the Passover. No. In fact, you could never take a lamb who had broken, broken bones or any animal that was marred in any way. 
and take it to God's house to offer it up in sacrifice. And the Passover lamb could not be marred. It had to be intact. It had to be whole. What's the chances that Jesus would be the exception to the rule of three who get their legs broken? And he's already dead, having given up the spirit that his very bones would, be, would remain whole, would remain intact. John says, this took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Of course, that's not the only place that John calls attention to the scriptures being fulfilled. You have it back in the dividing of the garments and the casting of the lots. You have it really throughout the account of Jesus, life and death, that scripture is fulfilled in the things that take place. And then this final thing about the piercing of his side with the spear. And it's a quote that comes from the book of Zechariah. In chapter 37, in the context of the shepherd being sent to shepherd God's people, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And just briefly, go to Zechariah, book of Zechariah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. What's that? Help me out. Did I say Zephaniah twice? Zechariah. What's that? Okay, let's turn to the book of Zechariah, not Zephaniah. Zechariah. Zephaniah, Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And I can, there's a song Jan made up. I'll teach it to you to remember the minor prophets. But here, in chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And I'd love to spend an hour just looking over the titles that are given to Jesus as the only child, the only begotten, the firstborn of God. Of the fact that this matter of the piercing of the Son of God comes in the context of the giving of the Holy Spirit pouring out upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of supplication. And you see the reality of this coming to pass on the day of Pentecost when Peter's Pentecostal sermon led 3,000 souls to feel pierced in their hearts and to say, what shall we do? And Peter calls upon them to believe. They will look upon him. They will believe in him. They will weep bitterly over the fact they rejected him. And they called for his crucifixion. And they were had implication in his death. Being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Peter tells him, you crucified and slew him. You. You who rejected him, crucified him and slew him. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. Not just the one upon whom the nails were driven into his hands and feet, but his very side was pierced. And the language comes up again in chapter 53. He was pierced for our iniquities. The term wounded is the meaning of pierced for our iniquities. The anticipation is that the suffering servant would be pierced for our sins. And it was this piercing of the Son of God that was the very reason came with the thought of a Roman soldier to take his spear and pierce the side of the Son of God. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Folks, that needs to clinch the deal. I mean, it clinches it for me. I hope it does for you. That this death was an atoning death. That this death was not for his own guilt. This, this, this death was for others. And all this took place in fulfillment of the scriptures that spoke of the one who would come to be pierced for our sins and our transgressions. Well, I'll have some 
applications. I've taken a lot of time this morning. I apologize. I'll try to be brief with the with the applications, but simply this. Uh, I got a word of warning, a word of mourning, and a word of learning, okay? Really quick. First of all, a warning. We live in a, a world today, and, and, and it's flowed into the Christian church, where there is, in my estimation, something of a growing glorification of cruelty and ruthlessness. An inability to weep at the horrible sufferings that go on in the world today because our nation's triumphant or our interests are triumphant and it generally doesn't matter how people suffer just as long as we gain our own ambitions that's so wickedly Jewish leader mentality that scripture condemns that scripture calls upon us to repent of and I was thinking of just some of the things that have been quoted to me through the years in which my friends have taken great delight. Like, uh, I think it was Orwell that said of soldiers that these are ruthless men who do the things that we would never do, that we might pillow our heads in in bed at night in sleep. And, And I'm thankful for those ruthless men, those soldiers, that go to a place of war and conflict for the purposes of freedom, for the purposes of justice, for the purposes of the defense of their nation or the defense of others against some evildoers who would be looking to do evil things. But ruthlessness for its own sake, or ruthlessness for the sake of just living in conditions where we don't have hostilities and we don't have war, and just saying that we need to treat other people like, like a bunch of garbage and like a bunch of, uh, of hostile enemies that we have no love for and we have no interest in and we just divide the world very cleverly and clearly between those who are to love those like us and those who are to hate everybody else and that sort of mentality is condemned in the word of God I was sharing this with some, some brethren at, uh, at lunch the other morning and I'm just going to read it to you it says in Proverbs 11 in verse 16, it says this. It says, A gracious woman gets honor. Ruthless men get riches. They get riches when they're ruthless. They get what they want. They get it by power. They get it by force. They get it by violence. But they don't get honor. They get riches. It goes on to say, A man who is kind benefits himself. A cruel man hurts himself. Again, that ruthless, violent person who thinks he's benefiting himself because he's getting riches. Proverbs says no. It's the kind man who benefits himself. You think you're benefiting yourself because you're getting riches? You're killing yourself and you don't even know it. You're hurting yourself. And it goes on to say that the wicked earns. And again, they they get riches. But the writer says he earns deceptive wages. He gets what he wants, but it's deception. It's nothing true. It's nothing lasting. It's nothing eternal. It's nothing from God. But the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Folks, it's cruel men who put Jesus to death. It's men without conscience that put Jesus to death. It's men that said, we know what we want, and we're going to get it, we're going to get it now, and we don't care who, we mow down in the path of doing it. Those are no models for you and I as the people of God, even when there are people who are doing it in a good cause. The end does not justify the means. If the end justified the means, Jesus would have just obliterated all those people and would have taken the throne of his glory and put all of his enemies to death. But he goes and he dies. He gives his life a ransom for many. He dies that others might live. He dies that a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe should be gathered together unto God in not power, but in love, in righteousness, and in truth, with lasting rewards and not deceptive wages. 
of getting God's blessings God's way and not by the way of our own self aggrandizement our own self will our own self achievement and then the next thing is that these heartless cruel and merciless people should have been the mourners and again what does Zechariah tell us when they behold the one that they've pierced, what will they do? They will mourn. When the Holy Spirit is given to those that crucified the Son of God, what will be the result? They will mourn. The heartless and the ruthless will be brought humbled before the mighty hand of God. And they will bow their hearts and bow their knees and confess their sins. And the greatest regret of their lives would be they had any form of implication in the persecution of others, in the heartless, cruel treatment of others. It's so interesting, when Paul thinks of his life as a sinner and a transgressor, then he tells in the book of Timothy that this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He's talking about what? He persecuted the church of God. He murdered Christians. And he came to mourn that. And it was a life-lasting mourning. And then the final thing is the learning that Jesus is the Passover sacrificed, sacrificed for us. It's his blood that causes the judgment to pass over us, that leads us to the sea where freedom lies, where liberation comes, where Union with God in worship and service becomes the reality in a context of covenant love and covenant loyalty. Then we come to turn from tears to joy, from sadness to gladness, from mourning to celebration, to standing at the sea, blessing and praising a victorious God. Well, folks, I've kept you long this morning. I apologize for doing it. I didn't think this sermon was going to be this quite this long. We thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for we consider these things, and we pray you'd give us understanding in them. As we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.